Hi everyone, welcome to HashMap on Tap. I want to thank you for tuning in and we really appreciate you listening to the show today. I'm Kelly, he's Randy. Today we are pleased to be joined by George Luft. George is responsible for data management and governance at Knights of Columbus. They're a New Haven, Connecticut-based, two million member Catholic fraternal organization that provides a range of services, including insurance, investment services, scholarships, and charitable services. George, hi, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Let's get things kicked off. What are you drinking today? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, I'm drinking a New England Brewing Sea Hag IPA. It's kind of my my go-to drink. And, you know, so yes, the Knights of Columbus is a Catholic men's fraternal organization based in New Haven, Connecticut. They were founded by Father McGivney about 140 years ago. Um, and they provide financial services for their membership. And I've been working there about 12 years. Oh, man. Great. We will uh, we'll definitely uh, dig into that a little bit. Looking forward to it. Let me ask you, on the, on the brew, you've been enjoying that for a few years now as a go-to? Yeah, New England Brewing is kind of in my backyard from when I grew up. And, uh, you know, it's they've got a few other uh, interesting beers. G-Bot is one that has gotten a lot of press over the years. Yeah. Is a... Uh... Is Sea Hag salty at all? Because it sounds salty. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a salty tail behind it, but a little bit of that. No, yeah. it's a very it's a hoppy IPA. You know, I think it's like six percent alcohol, so it's you know, it's a right little, on. It's up there. Well, I, Randy, of course, um, I am drinking uh, one of my favorite beers. I haven't had it in a while, and I actually treat it as kind of a treat. It's a bit of an indulgence because it's uh, not the healthiest beer, but it is the Samuel Smith Organic Chocolate Stout. Um, they sell them in big single bottles and a friend of mine back in uh, at Purdue computer science, he's a Russian guy and he is who turned me on to some of the darkest beers I've ever had ever. And he brought this over one time. And the thing I like about this is you hear chocolate sour and you're thinking, okay, it's, it's really sweet. Maybe it's, it's Swedish. It's all about that cocoa flavor. I mean, you can taste the pods, man. This is a fantastic beer and it's available everywhere. So I encourage people to check this out. Kelly, what are you having? Yeah, I'm going to have to try both of those. I've got today, so I'm Shiner's a go-to quite a bit. I've got the Shiner Oktoberfest today. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, and in honor of getting into the fall here and, and uh, the September, October, November season, I am having that. It's very, very good. I think I'll enjoy this throughout the show and, uh, you know, just kind of an homage to, uh, to Oktoberfest getting uh, kicked off soon in Germany as well. You think they're going to kick it off? Maybe. Who knows? I mean, I you know, it's... That'd be interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard uh, to the contrary yet, but you're I right. Could, it, it could. I it could do could. virtual Oktoberfest. I oh, that it. would be cool. Yeah. Pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Well, um, let's get rolling then, and we'll enjoy uh, the beers throughout the show. But uh, so, George, you, you talked a little bit about uh, Knights of Columbus, interesting organization. You've been with the organization for the last number of years. What started, uh, or, or how did you first get interested in Knights of Columbus? Sure. I, I grew up in New Haven. Knights of Columbus has been kind of a fixture in downtown New Haven. I mean, the, the building is a notable part of the landscape. But again, I also came at the Knights of Columbus through financial services. I've always worked mm. in financial services for most of my career. And um, I worked in the credit unions for a long time, which is kind of a similar model. It's a membership model where they can only sell services to their to their membership. So same thing with the Knights. You know, they, they have this uh, motto. It's you know, by brother nights for brother nights. So they, you know, they provide services for their membership. So I like, I like the charitable aspect of it. Uh, you know, I think it's a good organization. Very good. Very good. Well, let me ask you this as, as you've been, you've been in the data space for a while 
And whether it's regarding Knights of Columbus or, or just in general, what are some of the key things, key problems, key challenges that you're seeing out there that uh, folks are trying to solve, George, in, in your opinion? Sure. I think one of the, the key challenges with data is, is quality. And, you know, whether it's perceived or real, I think there's a, you know, people don't feel that they can trust the data because they don't know where it came from. They don't know how recently it was refreshed, that kind of a thing. So again, that's kind of why I'm into data governance is I, I enjoy trying to address those those questions and, and to make that data useful for making business decisions and, uh, you know, improving business outcomes. Yeah, I think that when you mentioned data quality, we had done a poll, Randy, what was it, a, a month or so ago, I guess, where we talked about what's the most prevalent problem that you have with data. And I want to say data quality was a resounding number one position, George, when you look at that, you mentioned as a as a key issue. I want to say uh, data silos, maybe silos. too many data silos yeah. were, was number two and skills and so forth. But man, you're right. Data quality is a top one. And I think it goes to exactly what you said. Data quality means how much can I trust that data? How much can I trust the, the context of it, the lineage of it, the provenance of it, all those types of things so that I can make actionable decisions off of it? I agree. And I think that, you know, what you said about silos, I like to joke that our silos have silos. It, yeah, it is. <laughs> Everything's kind of in its own little world. And, you know, all of the related business logic that you know, it's kind of assumed. Everybody knows what, what this means. Everybody knows what that means, but not everybody actually does. And especially when you try to translate that into requirements or a spec for, you know, an ETL job or some integration with a vendor, that's really where those assumptions, you know, break down. Yeah. As the custodian for the data within your organization is, would you say that that data quality is one of the most challenging things for you to really get right in your current role? Or are there other aspects of that that are really tough? Well, I think data quality is one of the more visible ones. And like I said, part of it is a perception problem. You know, people will say, oh, the data is bad. But if you look at it, I mean, we have hundreds of tables and millions of rows. And, you know, percentage wise, the numbers are actually pretty good. You know, these, this table's tight. This one's right on. This one's good. This one table that everybody sees and, it, you know, affects 50 different reports. That's the one that everybody's going to complain about. And then usually it's only one or two columns within that table. So, you know, I, but I think it's, it's also a matter of giving that visibility and transparency because mm -hmm. people don't know. They just see that number on the report. and They're like, this is wrong. But if you were, you know, we don't really publish metrics and we're working on that. But, you know, you want to be able to show data quality metrics so people can say, oh, it's really not as bad as we thought. Let's put our, you know, focus on fixing these issues and then people can feel better and trust the data. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Randy, you and I have talked a number of times about, you know, especially with an organization like like uh, with Knights of Columbus, it's you know, been around obviously a long time financial services, investment services, et cetera. It's a, it's a very conservative industry in general. And you look at some of the, you know, we're talking a little bit about technology, but but people in process. I mean, it takes a lot, all three of those dimensions really to kind of get to a modernization state. Uh, so it'd be interesting, you know, Randy, what you've seen from a, a FinServe perspective as it relates to modernizing all three of those aspects. Yeah, it's a tricky problem. Right. And I don't know about you, George, it's been rare in my experience that the bottleneck has been 
technological where it's like, oh man, now we have this tech solution and it's, it's twice as fast and that was the thing. Well, no, because everyone's still on their Excel sheets or in yeah. their Python scripts or not talking to each other. Your silos have silos, right? Uh, now the fix to that, I, I don't know what it is, right? Um, we work around it. We have lots of good ways to try to patch around it, but I, I gotta think there there is an optimal way to design an organization where these these data islands of knowledge, right? Mm. They they don't have to exist. Yeah. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen it, and maybe that's because the the companies that have figured that out they don't hire a lot of consultants. I'm not sure. I think you may be onto something there, but <laughs> but it, it you know at at a lot of um, levels it comes down to communication. And, sure. and like I talked about the visibility of it, people aren't cannot see under the covers of where, you know, where that number came from. There are tools that exist that allow you to do that, you know, lineage type tools, data catalogs. Yeah. And we're looking at a few of those. But, uh, you know, I think, Randy, you've talked about this before. People kind of struggle with implementing those tools and getting value out of them. But at the same time, I think it's a really good way to leverage the data that you have and understand the data you have and to communicate that broadly beyond the, the developers and the DBAs and the architects that see it on a daily basis and, you know, have folks in the business who actually can say, oh, now I understand what you're talking about. It's about bridging that, you know, the classic IT versus the business divide um, and providing kind of a common, common medium that they can even have the conversation. I think it's just hard to get everybody on the same page. You can have a meeting with the accounting folks or the actuarial folks and the IT folks, and they will talk for an hour. And then they'll walk away and everybody walks away with three different understandings of, of what we just talked about. But if you have a shared model and usually it's, I'm a, you know, it's a visual thing, you know, you got to draw something on a whiteboard and then the light bulb goes off. People yeah. say, oh, when I'm in that screen, that affects this database, which affects this report or whatever. And it's about connecting those dots. Yeah. I think that's one of the most satisfying uh, parts of my job. This is this used to be an in-person process where I can go in and ask kind of the dumb questions, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you have two representatives from different orgs that are maybe competing for something and things have gotten in the way that they do a little, I don't want to say out of hand, but there's contention, there's defensiveness, there's intentional disruption of communication channels. But new guy comes in, asks some questions, throws some things on the whiteboard, and then you can restate things instead of this or that. It's this here and that there and then you can validate all sides and you can make some real progress in a half an hour or, or 60 minutes i've seen that happen a couple times and i didn't do anything i just come in and ask some dumb questions and restated things in like non not offensive but like non-attacking language uh, not you statements but more like we statements this you know focus on that but uh, no you're exactly right it's a communication gap and i've been spending a lot of time thinking about it, this core question is it the case that all knowledge management is doomed to suck. It, does that have to be true? And a new UI, a five trans style experience is not the thing that will crack it. Or is it the case that the ubiquity of data warehouses, of commodity ETL that you can just turn on, you don't have to be a coder for, you don't have to mess with teams, of transformation that's becoming more and more standardized through tools like DBT. Is it just now that the timing is right for a good catalog knowledge management system to come in place? I don't know. But I know when I talk to data professionals across the board, they say, this is a challenge. Everything I've used sucks. It breaks immediately. I've stopped even looking. And there's this general feeling like there should be something better. And you can list out qualities of it, right? It should be pretty self-service. It should be discoverable. It should be you know easy to use. It should be mostly self-documenting. But where is it? I don't, I don't know. Um, has that been your experience as well? 
it, it very much so. And I, you know, I didn't put it in such stark terms because I guess I still hold out hope that 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 we can find that that holy grail and and find something that doesn't suck. Yeah. And yeah, the tools like you said, like DBT. You know, I've, I've I'm kind of hopeful that maybe they're they're scratching at the surface. But you know, and, and you you also kind of you feel that it should be like kind of a wiki like experience, right? Where you're clicking on a link and you're like, oh, now now I can follow that trail because. I don't know how, you know, I think everybody's different, but that's kind of how I operate, right? I don't have all the answers in a nicely formatted document. I follow the trail of breadcrumbs. Yeah. You know, I, I read this and then I'm like, oh, now I need to know that. Now I need to know that. And it leads you down all these different paths. And if you can navigate those paths and make them accessible to other people, because I think part of it is people fear to tread on those paths. Yeah. You know, they're like, well, I'm not technical. I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I don't belong here. You know, reasons yeah. why not yeah. to get involved in the process, right? And you need to make it a little more accessible, you know, give people, you know, give, tie a string around their waist or whatever you need to do. I think, you know, as a business user, I can sympathize that how many digital transformations have we seen happen? And all of them have, you know, taken some element of my time and not a ton have really delivered much for me. So there's this pessimism you have to overcome. This, this this lack of trust, right? And if you can establish that trust early on, then you get a lot more leeway and like, okay, this isn't perfect, but you know, we we try plus or minus ten percent accuracy, and we're going to improve this way, or we have these targets. And again, those aren't technological questions. Yeah. Hey, George, we've alluded to it a couple of times, but uh, what do you feel like is the role of the cloud in helping make a move towards you know more progress in the in the data analytics space in general? Sure. I mean, you know, I like to say, you know, the cloud is at this stage is almost like a no brainer. I mean, the, it just lowers the it lowers the cost of making mistakes, you know, which mm. one of your uh, recent webcasts or webinars, somebody was saying, you know, it's not going to stop you from making mistakes and you can pay for those mistakes. But at least the cost of that is you didn't have to go buy a big system and pay all this upfront licensing you're only paying for what you use. So if you can, you know, monitor that usage and limit your exposure that way, it's not a big upfront investment and it allows you to experiment. But you also need that, you need people who are willing to change that mindset. It's no longer just a, a waterfall. We have to do plan everything upfront and yeah. have it all, all, all our ducks in a row. And then we embark on the journey. It's like, we know we wanna go in this direction and we're willing to commit this amount of money up front before we have to commit 10 times that amount. Yeah. Man, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how many organizations have, if not the exact same template, um, almost word for word, same template between their like materials RFPs for getting like steel and pipes and, you know, oil field kind of stuff and their software requisition processes. And those are just totally different beasts, but they try to apply that same mentality to it, the waterfall you described. And by the time you come to a decision, the entire landscape can change. And really at the core, you need to get comfortable with moving quickly. Yeah, to me, again, both of those dimensions are really important. I think that that cost aspect, being able to do it without huge capital investment, but being able to do it very, very quick. And again, I may take a couple of wrong turns, may fail a couple of times, but if I'm not outlaying a bunch of costs and I can hit that winner uh, quickly, that's uh, that's what I'm going to want to do. And I think that, uh, you know, if I can get that infrastructure effort out of the equation with these uh, SaaS solutions, the cloud-based solutions that are really doing all that in the background, kind of the set it and forget it mentality, uh, that's the way I would go as well. So now I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Hey, let me ask you something else. You, you and I have spent a little bit of time 
talking about and kicking around thoughts and ideas in the, call it broadly, the data integration space. It is very, uh, there's a lot of competitors out there. There's a lot of companies doing some really great stuff. Obviously, a lot of traditional vendors as well that have, uh, over the years, developed a lot of different types of solutions that are adding value. How, George, do you, how do you think about the data integration market in general? How would you start categorizing that or bucketizing that maybe in, in your mind as, as it relates to the challenges that you have uh, at Knights of Columbus? Well, I think one of the main challenges we have is we've got some legacy systems and we have to integrate with those legacy systems. So there's always that, well, the cloud's great, but how are we going to get our data out to the cloud? But my understanding is people have even figured out those challenges. Not everybody is a startup where it was just three guys in a basement writing JavaScript and just you know creating brand new greenfield uh, application that just you know makes them a billion dollars and they're you know they're off they got their own IPO. You know people are solving bit real business old business challenges and in insurance of all industries using you know whether it was Hadoop in its day, which seems to have come and gone. I don't know. Or, but the cloud is just a platform that kind of level, it creates a level playing field. But at the end of the day, you've got to get all these integration tools to now talk to the cloud. And it's like, how much of it do you need the backend infrastructure that talks to your mainframe that can pump data to the cloud? You know, how much of it is a pub sub model, like, a, you know, like a Kafka or, or an iFi kind of thing? You know, I mean, there's all the different technologies. And I think part of it is, understanding that landscape and you know in, in a lot of the conversations i've had with you guys or listening to some of the other guests on this podcast or you know a lot of resources out there is people have experience with these tools and there are use cases for each one of them and then it's a matter of going back to your own architecture and not just mapping it one for one and saying we want to do what we do now but kind of trying to envision what it would look like a year or two or three from now once we have the cloud in place and we can abstract away some of these things with APIs or gateways or whatever. So we're not so bound to that legacy piece, right? But now we just got data that's flowing into the places it needs to go. And we've got visibility into all the tools. We can monitor it and we can, you know, easily and, and iteratively make changes to them. You know, one of the things that I've seen, like with, again, with tools like DBT is they start to treat the code more as code that can be checked into a version management system that you can do um, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Again, you're stealing the model from all of the big giants. You know, Amazon does a promote every however many seconds or Netflix or whomever, you know, and then you've got companies that do a promote once every other, once every week or once every month. And, you know, if you can move, accelerate that pace of change and learn from your, learn from that change, to me, that's the key. The tools, I think, just enable that. No, that's it's a great point. And, and Randy, I was thinking as George was talking. I mean, you look at acquisition and transformation. The more that you can do some of take some of those automation steps, like George was talking about, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. Yep. So, what when you when you start looking at at those uh, at the tools that are out there, George? You've got you talked about some mainframe sources. Uh, I also think about you know we're talking about space where you've got members out there and, and maybe the, the firm is, um, you know, they're on social Facebook or 
LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, Instagram, those types of things. Are you are you starting to see a little bit more of a mix of data sources where you've got your traditional on-prem? Here are the transactions associated with this insurance transaction or investment transaction, et cetera. But are you also seeing some cloud uh, data sources starting to come to the mix as well? We are seeing it very early in the game, but you know we're okay. not as far along as a lot of companies, but we're definitely going to be asked to do it. And that's what we're preparing. We're trying to create a platform that will allow us to onboard new sources, especially cloud-based, you know, the social media sources, and be able to deliver that to the to the marketing and sales folks and the membership folks. So, you know, they can launch campaigns and do a lot of the things that companies do in this space. Yeah. George, let me ask you, and this is something I like to ask uh, people in leadership positions or positions of influence. How do you personally think about the buy versus build decision? Because it's not always black and white, which way you should go. Sometimes it's a little more obvious, but it's something I struggle with as well, being more technically minded. Yeah, I kind of want to build some stuff, even though you sh maybe you should just spend a little money on it. How do you approach that question? I think ultimately that that build decision is about a commitment to people. You're either going to put your trust in a company that has already built this thing, or you're going to buy the tools and the platform that allows the people that work for you to understand, who understand your business to build that. And I think there's a balance, you know, there are some things like kind of the not your core competency things that you don't want to be in the business of. Sure. Yeah. buy you know, like the HR system or payroll, you know, I don't want to build a payrolls, right? But if it comes to your membership system, you want people who are closer to that membership model who understand how we do membership and what what's important to our membership. But there's still some good off-the-shelf tools that you know that allow customization, that allow you know scripting or custom programming on top of that platform. And I don't think you're ever going to get away from it. Yeah, I think you're right. That at some point, the ability to have that off-the-shelf and you know a quick deploy multiple people using it already, uh, multiple companies using it, uh, does surpass that that build in a lot of cases, unless you've got some highly customized requirements that, that just have not been developed out there. And I feel like we're at a, a bit of a tipping point right now where you've got, uh, Randy and George, you've got a number of solutions that are, let's say, in the data integration space that are connector-based. I can quickly move, you know, schemas and all manner of things into the database environment that of my choice without having to have a lot of manual intervention in the process or a lot of operational oversight. Yes, I could build it, but for something like that that's fairly low level, that's that's out there, it's done, it's probably gonna, you know, it's to me it's it's kind of like, am I gonna be able to outbuild a firm that's doing this for a hundred large companies today? That's gonna be tough to do, right? Well, I, I don't know that you always have to outbuild them, right? There's there's the definition of good enough. And depending on the company profile you have, yeah, maybe it makes sense to do it internally. I will say, though, when, you, when you're making economic decisions, it's really important to really take a formal look at your total cost of ownership on both models. And the people I've seen scoff at X number of dollars per year for a managed ETL solution they're the ones who really have no idea how much time their team is spending on fixing broken things or how much lost value there is in not being able to generate a specific report or to only answer questions once every quarter. They, they don't really see those costs, right? So yeah, to them, they're thinking this should be a cheap company. I had someone's like, what are you talking about? The, the warehouse is cheaper than the ETL system. And in their mind, the warehouse was the big buy. Yeah, okay, maybe back when you're doing CapEx, OpEx split, you weren't full TCO and it was a massive expenditure that you had to you know break out over multiple years. But now in the cloud world, 
No, those are the services that actually add value. And then you think of the warehouse more as like a platform, as a base, right? For that utility almost. Yeah. So I've seen people struggle with that question and I've seen folks go one way and then a couple months later really regret it. So uh, we, we try to, I think Kelly, I mostly agree with you, but I still think that there are places where, yeah, it does make sense to do it in-house. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, especially if you've got areas that are incremental value add to your business that uh, you want to, you know, gain a bit of an edge on versus, you know, let's say another member-based financial services organization. That To me, that makes a lot of sense. And George, you and I also, we've talked about, you know, you look at some of the traditional vendors that are in play out there, um, you know, the Informaticus, Talons, the, these types of companies, uh, Data Stage, been around a long time, doing a lot of good work uh, still today. And then you've got these cloud-based solutions. How, do you do you feel like there's a place to, you know, find that one tool that that does it all? Pick that one tool, or how how are you really considering the space right now? Is it is it a tool bag approach, two or three tools, or are you trying to find that one tool that does it all? We're still working through that. I mean, we are an Informatica shop, but we just use it for ETL data integration. We have not, you know, gone into data quality or MDM or any of those other areas. There's a there's a pretty big price tag to that. But at the same yeah. time, you know, in my mind, we should also be reevaluating the ETL side of it, especially if we're going to lean toward, you know, the, the ELT paradigm. Then it's just about moving the data into your cloud platform and then transforming it after there. Now, again, Informatica has got some capabilities in that space as well. So I'm not saying we're, we're throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater there. But I mean, I think where cloud comes in, especially is kind of the commoditized service, right? You've got this platform that just works. You don't need a whole team of people to, to babysit it. And then kind of the, the consumption model. I mean, you can't beat that. It's pay as you go. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to anticipate what it is that you want, that you're going to, you know, how many cores you need or anything else and, and pay all that money up front. You can, grow, you know, pay as you go and pay as you grow. So, like yeah. And and then the other thing is a lot of these tools, like I said before, plug into that CI, CD, data ops, if you will, mentality, where the, the, the older tools just don't do that. You know, I mean, one of the things I've said um, before is whether you want to go to the cloud or not, and that universe has changed in like the last two or three years anyway, but um, you kind of have to because all of the vendors are pushing you into the cloud, right? Even Informatica, right? Now they're all about going to the cloud, right? We have on-prem power center server we won't have those so you know again i think it's just that's where the market is headed where the tools are going and economically it makes sense because you can't build a google data center or an amazon data center especially not not as cheaply as they can and then you know you got the security side of that you know i mean i don't know about you but i'm i'm not that good no it's a, it's a good point and, and going back to what you said earlier randy dig down just a little bit because George talked about this value of pushing down the transformations into a cloud data warehouse and the difference between say a traditional approach on prem where I'm doing a lot of data movement back and forth between the database and the ETL solution. I think you're seeing this a lot more, aren't you? Yeah. The, the pressure to do push down to your yeah. warehouse. I think for a while there was some concept that, well, the warehouse just needs to respond to BI requests. They just need to make dashboards run and then we'll separate ETL into some services or some of the processes, especially when like a warehouse couldn't handle a JSON, right? Or couldn't handle more advanced objects. 
now that's not necessarily the case. And we see that the warehouse can do more and more. And not only can it do it, it does it a lot better. Um, the data stays co-located, the optimizations that um, something like Snowflake can achieve or BigQuery can achieve when the data is all in the same area. They, they vastly overdo any, even your best tools, they're going to have that tax, I call it. Like if you're going to do all your ETL and Databricks, nothing wrong with Databricks, but if you're going to do SQL-based ETL and Databricks, the first thing you're going to do is grab all of your data from Snowflake. That's going to turn Snowflake on, it's going to turn Databricks on, and they're going to wait until you have all that data over in Databricks. Then you're going to massage it, move it around. You need to have a big enough Databricks instance to hold all the data at once, right? Because you didn't just grab what you needed, you grabbed it all. And then you're going to process it, do whatever, and then push all of it all the way back. They're both still running, and then they stop. And that's just so expensive. It's slow. It's worse in a lot of ways. The error, if there's an error, you have to check two different systems. Um, it becomes complicated. And then there's the orchestration that has to work across two different systems. So if you're able to keep a lot of your SQL-based transformation logic in a single area that can scale up or down on demand, I would say that's that's the way to go. And I think that's the way people are going to go. And that, that changes your design a little bit, right? Those older companies who had the ETL tool set, they're designed for a different kind of model. And they've been building for different kind of challenges. But the ecosystem shifts under their feet. And all of a sudden, the warehouse is the place to do everything. Well, maybe someone like DBT can spring up and they don't have to own all the complexity of the disaster recovery of the, the, the transformation specialties that you have to have or custom logic. Just make writing SQL easier. And that's a big, big win. Um, so that's kind of my jumbled thoughts on the process. I think there was a time when that wasn't necessarily seen as a must have. But uh, more and more, if your system can't support pushdown, so you have to somehow scale your your transformation tool to be the size of your peak demand. And again, that's usually not particularly elastic. If, if your underlying data warehouse does not support auto suspend or auto resume, you have to somehow know magically when things need to be on. Those, those aren't true adaptations to the cloud. That's not really living in the cloud. Um, so those are the things I kind of look for. I think other people are awoken to that as well. That's a common demand. No, that makes a lot of sense. George, we, you know, we've talked a little bit, kicked around uh, some on the acquisition side, some on the transformation side. Do you feel like there for, for you and the things that you're working on in, in your group, is there is one or the other of those data acquisition or data transformation a bigger challenge? And, and why do you feel that way? To me, it's more about and it's I guess it's on the transformation side. And, you know, I would even argue it's on the presentation side, which and part of the problem and the challenge is they get mixed up. It's the classic Excel spreadsheet problem. Is it data or is it code or is it both? And then how do you debug it and how do you separate the two? You know, I think the key is to separate out the business logic, you know, and, and the tools today are, are enabling that where it's like, let the database handle the database, let your transformation tool handle the transformations and put all of your transformations in the tool and give it, a visibility and a transparency so you know what those rules are with a metadata language or meta language like, you know, LookML or what DBT does. You want to put that semantic layer in there that says, hey, here's the raw data, the way it came over from the source, and I can validate that, I can tick and tie and make sure that there's integrity there. Then I do these transformations based on these explicit business rules, and here's your transformed data. Now go to town and do your analysis and do all that. And there's a lineage and a clarity kind of from end to end. What I think happened in a lot of the traditional stuff is they try to do, you know, you're doing ETL. You're trying to transform it as you're, as you're extracting it and loading it. And it confuses people and they don't understand 
you know, even the same developer who wrote the ETL job five years ago can't tell you what that job's doing without poking at the code and figuring out what he did, you know, because he doesn't remember it. So, and and I think it ties in kind of with that, you know, the old Unix tool mind, mindset, right, is have, do one job, do it well, and then, hand, you know, pipe it out to the next step. And again, that's why these are kind of cloud pipeline. You know, you want to just, you know, chain these things together and you can even, you know, tools like Alteryx kind of do that, you know, in that spirit of you, you've got all these different steps along the way and you can stop and put a viewer in and say, did I do it right? You know, or, and I do a lot of stuff in Python. I do the same thing, right? I can execute step one, step two, look at the values. Then I do step three. And if I don't like it, I can go back to step two and re-execute step two. And you can do it in this kind of iterative fashion. But then once you have the, you know, steps one through five all lined up, you can, you know, it's like ticking over to dominoes and, but you know exactly what they're doing and you can explain it to somebody else. Yeah. You, you make some really good points. And I was thinking as you were talking that, uh, you know, a lot of, it's, oh, let's, let's get this data acquisition, data transformation thing kicked off. But you said right in the beginning, hey, I want, let me work backwards from the presentation or the consumption side. And I think that's a really valid way to go. Randy, we see that a lot. Start from consumption, work your way back. And that really drives out what are those technologies that you're going to need to be able to fulfill those consumption use cases. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the key to this is there is business logic buried at all the levels. Yeah. And if you can expose and and simplify as much of that as you can, but if it's in the report and if it's in the data layer and if it's in, in the ETL layer and it's in the sources, remember, there's also code in the source system that's transforming the data. You know, we run into those problems all, all, all the time, right? The data in the, the database behind the policy admin system looks one way, but when they bring it up on the screen, it looks completely different because they're interpreting values and they're doing calculations on the fly. And then people are like, well, how come the report doesn't have that? It's like, well, I don't know, because it's a COBOL program running somewhere and I don't have access to that. No, that's it. Absolutely. Let, let me uh, shift just a little bit to another category, maybe, of, of data integration. Let, you guys want to talk a little bit about enterprise application integration solutions or maybe uh, more 2020 kind of API-based approaches, some of the some of the pros and cons of, of API-based approaches. I'm thinking companies like uh, that do this really well, MuleSoft, Dell Boomi, those, those types of companies. What, what are your thoughts there? How do they fit in to this overall data integration landscape? Sure. Uh, yeah, our enterprise architecture folks are really uh, keen on making, you know, whole API infrastructure work. I think there's a lot of promise there. Again, I think there's a lot of work to abstract out all of the, the different areas where the business logic is and do that. But if you can pull that off and decouple these systems, so, you know, there's kind of this common presentation layer that people, you know, it's kind of like a, like a self-serve menu-driven thing where you're just picking and choosing from the offerings. I think there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of promise there. We've looked at a few tools like MuleSoft and Boomi. Um, another area that we've been working on a little bit is uh, robotic process automation. You know, basically people are trying to take, you know, some of that human element out of it uh, of, you know, I have to do this and then make a decision. And, but it's not, it's really not that it's, you know, you're trying to create a standardized offering that you or anybody else can consume without having to understand the things that you understand. You're, you, you know, you're publishing data. 
that says this is the data this is what it means this is where it came from these are the allowed values and you're you know whether it's in a WSDL or you know some other api type contract you know you're just trying to be very upfront about you know what it is that you're presenting and what it is that you're that you need to consume absolutely randy any anything that you're seeing what's uh, what's the uptake on that uh enterprise integration or api space right now i mean we're working with apis constantly but as the that's kind of the, the the central focus around data integration. Any thoughts? I never saw, you know, the challenges that something like MuleSoft is setting out to address as being the major bottlenecks that's keeping some large organization from deploying their fleet of APIs. Like, okay, put MuleSoft in place. You have central governance. You have metrics. You can shut it down. You can control authentication centrally. That just never seems. That seems like busy work in the absence of really understanding how your end users are going to consume of solving the exposability challenge. Of okay, they have the API, but is it well documented? Does it change abruptly? Does it become trustworthy uh, in time to be able to be part of someone else's solution space? Right, and it just seems to be an answer to like, yeah, our organizations are really siloed, and we've thrown up our hands. So let's get MuleSoft, and now we have APIs, but. Okay, I don't know. I, I've been um, skeptical, right? I've definitely seen companies invest in MuleSoft. I've not worked with Boomi at all, but uh, assuming it's similar, I think they're selling. They, they look like they have a good business model. It just doesn't seem to be the thing that's of of concern. Like that's not what's stopping you is either having this or not having this. It's just you don't have a data first culture uh, and your teams can't trust you to support an API long term. So they're not going to build on top of it. So they're just going to go build their own copy that they can control internally because your silos are too risky. That's where I'm seeing it. APIs in general. Yeah, absolutely. They're still um, an important part of the data integration space, largely because if, if your service is not supported by an out of the box ETL provider, you're talking about probably some custom code. Right. And even even the tools that are no or low code, I mean, they're still they have a sufficient level of complexity that you can think of them kind of code like. Right. APIs change and break even from good established companies, um, having some ability to alert on that, to monitor on that, to ensure that you're not ingesting a bunch of junk without realizing it, because APIs are, of course, generally a very, very loose structure. It's not unless you're using like a protobuf, right, super like defined binary format, right? It could come in in any kind of format that you want JSON. You won't know it's broken unless you have good data quality checks in place. And those aren't specific to the API area. But I think when you talk about API source, you're really exposing the weaknesses of the enterprise data engineering ecosystem. Like they're just not really great at managing code. They're not great at orchestration, not great at automatic deployments or alerting or reacting quickly to changes. And those are all really important skill sets when you're working with API sources. So it's, it's a rambling kind of answer, but I mean, that's my general take on them is that there's still a weak spot for enterprises. Yeah, so, some great points. I guess I would look at it as if the organization that I have in place and the skills that I have in place enable me to increase my speed to impact or speed to value with one of those type solutions. And by all means, I may go down that path. But Randy, bring up an interesting point too about maybe not being as uh, as attuned to some of the uh, modern uh, uh, code development and uh, code uh, processes, I guess, that uh, that help automate and help uh, increase that speed. Uh, you know, I'd have to probably dig into some of the latest tools there in that in that traditional EAI space and see if they are starting to embrace that a little bit because it is it is a little bit more on that traditional side they've been around a long time 
and uh, how much are they are they truly you know sort of modernizing in, in some of these areas that you described? I, I think when George brought up RPA, that was really uh, really clever, right, to tie to this discussion because I think this is a guess, but it seems like there's going to be a skip over like teaching the business to work with APIs. We're not going to bother with that, right? And we're going to go straight to RPA, we're going to connect these services, low code, no code. That's really going to be the answer. And it's not going to require such um, enterprise distribution of our custom APIs. It's going to more rely on standard interfaces that are supported by some third-party company that that's our full-time business. And then you implement some kind of business logic in a way that a computer can understand. It can be automated um, pretty pretty broadly, right? Uh, but the folks that do that, they're the people who have the SME experience to know what should be automated. And they don't necessarily have to have the coding experience. I think that's probably a really clever way to look at this as opposed to like, okay, now that we got MuleSoft, all of our APIs are present and the business is going to start making rest calls any day. Well, that's the thing though, is you have to, you still have to code those APIs and it's a tool that like, like a MuleSoft or Boomi that, you know, in theory will allow you to build those APIs at scale and then manage them and everything else. But I think you're right. I think a, a lot of the, like I said, the promise of APIs is is about that interoperability with other exter external businesses, external vendors. And it's about how you can easily and quickly scale up and, and meet them, you know, where they, where they say you need to meet it. You know, it's like, we don't work with Walmart, obviously, but I, you know, if you're not doing things the, the way Walmart says you have to do our API, you're not doing business with Walmart. Right. Yeah, no, I think you definitely need APIs. I just, I don't see MuleSoft as being the answer for how do you get the results of all that API work, the actual, the fruits mm -hmm. of that labor into the hands of the people who can do something about it, who'll make a decision differently. I, I think that RPA is probably, or the low code, no code environment, they're going to skip that need where people won't be consuming broadly from these MuleSoft API marketplaces, right? Internally at your organization, you'll still have people consuming APIs and they'll still be working together, but that'll be more on the code side than the, 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 the citizen data scientist or whomever. But I could be wrong. Yeah. Maybe I'm totally seeing this the wrong way. And that there are other constraints that, you know, from an ex from outside fortune 100, you know, it makes you scratch your head, but from inside, it makes total sense. The incentives are lined up and it's a fantastic solution. Hey, let me uh, let me throw another one out uh, that Georgie and I have kicked around a little bit. Orchestration systems. Think uh, Airflow, Uzi, Prefect, those types of, of solutions. What is the place, guys, of orchestration systems in this overall cloud modernization uh, journey and process? Sure. One of the areas that's kind of near and dear to my heart, because I have like a, an operational background, system administrator, you know, before I got into the data space. Is, is exactly that, kind of understanding the, the dependencies of jobs and which jobs run in what sequence and how to optimize that and how many can you run in parallel, you know, and we have to deal with a lot of those challenges of, you know, there's a business area that wants their report to come out earlier in our nightly batch cycle. So we have to understand what tables are being loaded and when, how early in the cycle can we release their report and have it still have update information so that orchestration scheduling thing um yeah there's tools like airflow and and even you know dbt doesn't necessarily do orchestration but they do one of their artifacts is are the dags the directed graphs that they can produce and that, that you know that dependency graph is the key and i've done you know this is where also i've kind of dabbled in graph database i think it's a perfect use case 
for trying to understand your job dependencies and try to optimize for, you know, performance, availability, find bottlenecks. You know, you're looking for jobs that are your long running jobs. Or, you know, the other thing that I find a lot is you've got a lot of phantom dependence. You know, this job's in the schedule and it runs after that job, but there's really no dependency. Can we break that dependency and, and you know, release data earlier? So, so being able to ingest and analyze that and look for trends, you know, oh, this job's been running progressively longer every month end. You know, is there anything, does somebody need to go back and look at the code or do we need to partition the database? So it's that, that operational analytics that if you don't have something that's capturing all of those data points along the way, then you can't, you know, it's like what, what you can't manage what you don't measure. So part of it is kind of that measuring, but it's also, and this is one of the things that I think gets lost on people is that is also code itself, right? It's building, it's kind of those if then else statements that says, if this job completed successfully, release this next job. And that code needs to be version managed and promoted from a test environment into production. So again, you apply the, the CI CD discipline to that as well. So that's my short answer on data orchestration. No, I appreciate that. And, and Randy, I think it's it's one of those things that uh, some kind, sometimes can get a little bit lost. We we have all these modern technologies, and oh by the way, we do our scheduling and orchestration with this solution that has to ultimately integrate in. So it's one of those things that's got to be on the roadmap to address, I think, along with everything else. Yeah, I, I don't know that I have a ton of you know interesting insight or anything useful to say about data orchestration, other than to encourage the folks using it for data who typically don't, they don't always come from a software engineering background, right? They're not always from an app dev background. That there's a lot of lessons to learn from that space around logging and observability that can make your job a ton easier so that when things do break, it is not a pants on fire investigation to figure out what and why, or, or just a constant, you know, addressing of symptoms and never finding root causes. So that's the only thing I would encourage, but yeah, data orchestrations, um, it's it's kind of a golden age. You can pick anyone you like. Uh, there's kind of a bleeding between what is CICD versus what is like pure data orchestration or job flow orchestration, right? Um, I hope that if anyone is using Uzi, that you have my condolences, because uh, that was a painful tool to use. I've used it in the past, but um, I think something like Airflow, and certainly, you know, not getting into the business, if you could avoid it, of having to manage the underlying infrastructure of those things, right? Because you can have the best workflows, but if the if the the Airflow server goes down, that's it. That's all. That's all she wrote. So, um, still some value to add in the cloud uh, in this space. Uh, good, good, good points, guys. Hey, George. I mean, we're uh, we've been chatting for a while. A couple of couple of things to kind of bring it home here. If you could pick one thing over the next uh, six months or so, next couple of quarters, uh, is there a problem that you would choose to focus on? Well, at the the state that we're at now, with just trying to get data governance off the ground, to me, what I'd like to do in the next six months is just to get to assemble kind of an executive council and start educating them on, you know, what data governance is and why it should be important to them. You know, for the past five or six years, I've been kind of trying to, to what I call socialize data governance. But now that I've got this, the, the title and the formal role, I really want to assemble the right people in the organization from the business and IT, get them and try and get them on the same page and, you know, kind of connect the dots for them from a lot of the pain points and the things that we struggle with that says, this is why we need data governance. You know, 
know, I mean, we get we get requests all the time. Again, it's usually how come this report is wrong, right? And I'm like, because we need data governance. And you know, and I like to say the data is not wrong. It was built, you know, the the report was designed five six years ago with a different purpose in mind. You're just trying to use it for a different purpose that wasn't intended at the time. So yes, that's data governance, and it's just about understanding, you know, um, business glossary type definitions, you know, and then spinning up stewards to actually mediate those kinds of discussions. So I'm just trying to get that off the ground. Yeah, it's it's a huge topic. I mean, I think we could spend a whole show on that for sure, mm -hmm. and uh, definitely something that that we think a lot about and how to incorporate that in and a in a way like Randy said earlier is is consumable. Uh, can be done in a way that that integrates really well with that overall data state that you have. Let me ask you if you had uh, if you were not dealing with data quality, data governance, and the overall data environment at Knights of Columbus. Do you have something that you would like to be doing? Let's say money were not an issue, I would be doing this. Anything that stands out? Sure. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is I would be sailing up and down the eastern seaboard, you know, just kind of pulling into, you know, little towns and, you know, checking out the food and, the, you know, the people. And, and I, I like that. I, you know, they call it gunk holing. You know, you just kind of pull into a, a port and then you go 10 miles up the road and you hit, an, hit the next one the next time. You solve a murder mystery every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Um, but other than that, I got plenty of things, you know, projects around the house yeah. here. And then I also, uh, I have a, a small apiary in my backyard. I keep bees, so they keep me busy. Ooh. Oh, man, I'd love to explore that topic with you at some point as well. <laughs> how many How many hives do you have? Just four. Okay. And what's the uh, what's the honey output on an annual? How many, uh, I guess, jars or gallons, I guess I should say, of honey do you get? Well, in theory, you can get about 100 gallons out of a hive. Or not 100 gallons, 100 pounds out of a hive, not 100. Um, oh. <laughs> but this is my second year and so far I haven't gotten any because I'm trying to just keep them healthy enough to get through winter and one yeah. is making sure they have enough food. Yeah. Yeah. No, very interesting. We'll have to, we'll have to chat about that. Hey, uh, also we do like to open it up. Is there anything that you'd like the HashMap on tap audience to know anything that you would like to give that we haven't already talked about? You'd like to give a little extra visibility to a project advice or anything uh, at all there? You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of cool things going on in this space. Um, you know, we had the Snowflake IPO last week. We got companies like like a DBT um, that are, you know, making strides. Um, yeah. And just a plug for his, he's got that data, data science roundup. That is a great newsletter. Yes. Yeah. Up that. Highlight of my week. Um, but, you know, ultimately, a lot of what we do as data professionals is, is trying to deliver value uh, and treat data as an asset. From which you can derive that value um you know you guys are always talking about the the four s's or three s's i think i've actually heard you come up with about five different s's it's, it's about it's up to about seven now actually they just yeah. keep going <laughs> i've got simple speedy sustainable self-serve savings and scalable but secure yeah. secure yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, but it all comes down to delivering value and like yeah. i said from a data standpoint that's about trusted data yeah, absolutely. And Randy, we'll have to hook up uh, or link up, I should say, that data science roundup in the show notes, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, if you're not subscribed to that, I mean, it's it's such a bright light. It's not just links either. There's some commentary on it. I've seen some really interesting discussions on there. And even like the data catalog thing, expanding uh, 
the way we think about it into more like it's not just cataloging or dictionary for your data. It's how do you manage knowledge in an organization and what what does it look like when that's done well? That's a that's one in their last issue that they um, they highlighted. And I thought it was just such an intriguing uh, discussion. So please, yeah, subscribe. Yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, we're kicking around George some ideas on uh, how to really attack that data cataloging space in a way that adds incremental value. So we may be coming back to you with some uh, thoughts and ideas on that. Hey, before we wrap up though, how do you look for a lightning round? A couple of uh, fun questions to, to end the show with. Sure. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Favorite social network. Twitter by far it's data and politics and all that. Although LinkedIn is good from a, just a data professional data standpoint. Yeah, so LinkedIn or uh, Twitter number one, LinkedIn number two. Very nice. Hey, have you had a during the last six months or so? Have you had a favorite or a go-to cook at home meal? I'm not much of a cook. I'm kind of the guy who makes the eggs in the morning. So that's a, yeah. yeah, eggs. I make pancakes. You know, well, what what what's your uh, what's your egg style go-to? You got scramble omelet, fried egg. You know, what's your what's your go-to there? It all. I have. You know, it depends on who the family member is. My wife <laughs> likes hers over easy. I like the omelets. My my daughter likes scrambled. Yeah, so. I did. Uh, I did egg sandwiches for uh, three of my kids this morning. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Hey, I, I what, about, <laughs> what about a technology that you can't live without? Uh, something that you just have to have in your role at Knights of Columbus. It, it's not very uh, glamorous, but it's Excel. I live in Excel. Mm. I Pivot tables, et cetera, et cetera. Although I would say Python and Pandas a, is right behind there. And a lot of times I'm pushing data back and forth between the two. Yeah. Randy, what's yours right now at HashMap? What is your tech, your tech you cannot live without at HashMap right now? Oh, man. Live without? I mean, there's what I want to be doing all the time. And that's either uh, DBT or no. serverless. Man, serverless is the thing that's captured my imagination for a little over a year, but we don't, we don't do a lot of app yeah. dev. So when I do get an opportunity yeah. for it, oh, I relish it. I really nice. enjoy it. Nice. Well, um, George, favorite spot. You're on the, you're on the Eastern seaboard there. What is your favorite spot in Connecticut? Can you share with us? Sure. Um, Mystic Seaport Museum. They've got old ships. It's like going back mm. in time. It's cool. Wow. I like it. I like it. Okay. Now this is, this is the most important lightning round question. You're in uh, the New Haven area. Knights of Columbus is based in New Haven, and you guys are pretty much world-renowned as the best pizza in the world. Do you have a favorite pizza spot in New Haven that is your absolute go-to? If you if you had a guest like Kelly and Randy come to town, you'd go, we got to get you to... Sally. Sally's um, in New Haven. Yeah. But we are blessed with a lot of good pizza places. Of course, in New Haven, you know, people don't, usually say this in common there's we're still calling it pizza but it's a beats right? <laughs> but we have we have plenty of good neapolitan pizza places like sally's and peppies and modern and bar and there are more new, new haven is re renowned for pizza quality i never yeah. heard this in my yeah, life yeah there's food yeah. channel things and you know oh yeah they just there was just something that came out that said pep frank peppies is number one across the nation and okay, so let me let me ask and i think i know the answer to this is it a thick crust that's prevalent or thin crust? new haven's thin it's a Thank thin you. that is the it's answer. hard okay it's a wood fired oven that's oh, and the crust yeah. is burnt like people are like what is this it's burnt nice there's some places in the woodlands texas north of kelly that are 
fantastic. Just like that. Sure. I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get in a position where I can start doing that at home. I'm not yet. We just, when we do pizza, it's in the regular oven, but man, you're, I think you're right. That, that coal fired char, man, that is, that's the way to go. Well, awesome. Uh, George, thanks so much for spending time with Randy and I today. We really uh, look forward to getting to keep up with everything going on with you, your data journey at Knights of Columbus. And uh, really thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Randy. Um, again, I've been a big fan of the podcast for probably over a year now and really my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Man, awesome. Thank you so much. And, and as always, a, a really big thank you to everyone that listened into the show today. We appreciate everyone that tunes in. We'd encourage you to also subscribe to the podcast. Visit us at hashmapinc.com. Send us any feedback and comments. We'd love to hear from you, other topics that you would like to hear about, and we will see you soon on another episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.